Welcome to Big Bear Christian Center Sermon Audio. Join us as Susan Stoppenbrink encourages us this week after Easter. But I also was hearing that what he wanted to do was infuse the word that he has me bring this morning, that that word will be alive because it has to do with his presence in his word. And so even this, the, the last song, Majesty is encapsulated in the essence of what God is saying in this word this morning. The Holy Spirit is really present. Now, many of you, last week, we had many visitors and many people raised their hands to begin their life with the Lord or to rededicate their lives with the Lord. So we say, well, what's now? That's just the beginning. So we're going to answer that. Or a start to answer that. First of all, Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. It's not just a ticket to heaven saying, okay, now I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. He wants a relationship with us. And Jesus is the very word we find in John 1. And our pastor started us in John for a reason. John 1 says that Jesus is the word. He wants us to know the word. I start every morning reading, not reading, but praying the Psalms. And that's a a really good place for some of you who may not know. So what do I do now? Open up the Psalms and begin to pray them. Personalize it. Put your own situations. Pour your heart out to the Lord in it. That's a good place to begin. One of my seminary professors had said, the highest form of worship is study. Now you say, ah, ah, no, that's just too intellectual. I don't, that's dry. Well, you don't study for information. When you come to the word, Jesus is the living word. We study for an encounter to actually meet Jesus in the word. That's what he wants for us. And this is something that he's putting on my heart to just kind of open up the word to see it's more than, than, Uh, printed words on a page that we can just learn information. There's so much more that he wants to share with us. And the importance of that, I'm going to start with a little story. When I was first saved in my uh, college, first year of college, my dorm mate took me to a, a prayer meeting where I heard the message. I responded. I had no head knowledge. I didn't know the Bible, but I responded to the Lord and he saved me and I was baptized in the spirit. I had no follow through. Immediately after that, my father died. I was very close to my father. I had had a lot of abuse from a lot of other people in my life, but my father was the one who loved me, cherished me. When he died, it was devastating. I had a trip planned from an elderly lady to take me to Europe just a couple of weeks after he died. She didn't want to take me anymore because her reason for taking me was to get my father's um, favor from her. That was her reason, and now he was gone, so why take me? But everybody pressured her into taking me. So I was still in shock of my father's death, went to Europe, where I had been living on my own for uh, a year in college, and I was raised to be rather independent and take care of myself. So she made me hold her hand everywhere, not talk to anybody, and then when we were alone, she would tell me that I killed my father. And I was devastated. Even with the abuse that I'd had as a child, I never felt bitterness, but with my grief, 
and my confusion and my loss of my father, I felt bitter. I went back to college. Now, I, I didn't come from a Christian family, so I, I didn't have any other Christians around me. The, the friend who took me to the prayer meeting had transferred to a different college. I never went back to the prayer meeting. I never had any follow-through. I didn't know what to do. Later in my life, I, um, I was in a very, very um, abusive marriage. And I was desperate, but I, I opened up a Bible that I had found. And you know how you can just go and say, God's going to speak to me in the Word? And you open up the Word? Well, the word that came popping out of the page to me was, the sin against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. Well, I never had bitterness before. And I thought, ooh, I was baptized in spirit, so I, should, I shouldn't feel this bitterness, so now I must be the unforgivable sinner. And that's where I stayed for five years. That's why it's so important that we come to really know Jesus in his word. Why we are in a a fellowship of believers who know each other. I was going to church, but it was a traditional um, denominational church that was not born again, didn't preach the gospel. So I still didn't get any help from them either. But Jesus did intervene in time because I was on a collision course to probably committing suicide, but the Lord intervened. That's another story. The reason I tell you this story is to tell you why it's so important that we come to know the Lord in his word. He met me. I wasn't, I didn't have any other Christians around me. He met me in the word, gave me a hunger, and then started to reveal himself to me. Now, our pastor started us in the book of John for a reason. That's the gospel that will tell us the most about Jesus and reveal God's heart. Because his motive, his purpose is that we come to know him personally in a relationship, in a love relationship, not just the head knowledge. And our pastor has started the foundational teaching of, of talking to us and teaching us from the book of John. My message is also going to come from the book of John. Well, today we have skeptics who say, I don't know about all this stuff. Well, back in Bible times, from the religious people who knew God, there were Pharisees and the chief priests who were also pretty skeptical. But the point is, we can know who Jesus is, and we can know him intimately. We can know who he is, and we can know him intimately when we really examine Scripture from the way it was written, the way God uh, set it up. He came. He's sovereign. He came to a specific people at a specific time because there's so much more than what's just on the surface. We as Western thinkers start with, here's our intro, here are our points, and here's our conclusion, and this is what it is, and we just follow this progression because that's the way our minds work. That isn't the way the culture of the time, their minds didn't work that way. They also had so much more in the stories. When Jesus was telling a story, he enacted. He was demonstrating. He wasn't just talking. He was revealing so much more in what he did. So we're going to take a look more from a um, snapshot of taking us back into time and experiencing what Jesus was saying and doing for the understanding of the people at the time. I had the privilege of, of studying with uh, professors who had 
some wonderful knowledge. And, and one of the books that I'm using as uh, a lot of my information comes from is a gentleman by the name, he's a scholar, by the name of Kenneth Bailey, who was not Jewish, but he was a Christian born in the middle and raised in the middle of e- in the Middle East, studied in the Middle East, and really understands the culture and was bringing out those rich nuggets that we would just miss otherwise. So I have to credit him with, with much of the insights here. In John 7, and you don't have to open, I'm going to take us through it. So you're going to see it pretty much enacted. John 7, 37 through 8, 1. Now, some of your manuscripts, some of your scriptures uh, will say that this is omitted in some of the early translations or early, uh, not translations, I'm sorry, early manuscripts. Well, there's a reason for that. They didn't have printing presses like they do now. And for someone to have a copy of one of the books of the Bible, they had to hire a copyist. And they would say, you know, I've got, no, this is the story of the woman caught in adultery, by the way. Um, They would say, you know, I've got a daughter that's a little wayward, and I'm afraid that this is going to influence her wrongly. Can you just leave that one out? That often happened in those days. So that is an explanation for why some manuscripts have it and some don't. However, it's in our Bible today for a reason. The early church fathers all agreed, and so have the scholars all along, that this is scripture. It goes along with what's, what Jesus did. That it it um, teaches the same teaching, so it is scripture. So this is what Jesus, okay, Jesus has the crowds around him. And he says, let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. Now, this is also a direct relationship to Isaiah 55.1. The people back then all knew the scriptures. They memorized them. These are the people of God. These are the people of the book. They knew the word. They knew what he was saying. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. Without saying the words, I'm the Messiah, Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah you're waiting for. Okay, so now the crowds are all gathered, and they're, they're kind of, who? He's saying he's God. No, he's not God. You know, he does miracles. So they're all divided. Now, the setting. There are three major feasts where not only the people of Jerusalem come to the temple, but people from all over other, other countries, that, those Jews that have been dispersed, all need to come to the temple. Feast of Tabernacles. And this is the eighth day, which is a Sabbath day. And they're all coming. And there are crowds. And we learn from Josephus, who's one of the historians of the day, that said that Roman soldiers were always on, you know, it was occupied, or um, Jerusalem was under Roman rule at the time. So the Roman soldiers knew this is a feast day. There were thousands of people all gathered. Now the, the, the possibility of a riot occurring during this time was pretty good. So the Roman soldiers would actually all be in the temple area, all around the corridors, all around the hallways, pacing, looking, watching. What's going to happen? Is someone going to say something? Who can I arrest? That's what's going on. So you've got all these Roman soldiers all the way around. Big crowds everywhere. In walks Jesus. He had just said the day before that he was the Messiah. And there was a lot of humming. It's like, he, he said he's the Messiah. So he walks in, comes up to the front, and he sits down. Now, to us, 
That doesn't make much sense. But when someone came and sat down in that culture, he's saying, I have authority. Only people with authority sat down. So he sat down and began to teach. Well, the um, Pharisees and the, and the chief priests were a little nervous about Jesus. So they, they uh, were setting a trap for him. Put this over here. So they had, uh, he started to teach. They got a woman and threw her at his feet. Now here's Jesus with his woman thrown at his feet. And they're saying, we just caught her in the act of adultery. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now, first of all, it takes two people to commit adultery. Right? These are the chief priests and the, and the um, religious leaders who are so zealous for the law. Well, the law in Leviticus 20.10 said that both parties were to be put to death not just a woman. So they're already breaking the law themselves by doing that. Also, think about this. How did they, religious leaders, catch this woman in the act of adultery? Hmm, interesting. They were setting a trap for Jesus. And they're asking him, ha ha, we got him now. He's going to respond in two two ways. He's going to say, stoner, and then all of these Roman soldiers are going to go, he's the instigator, arrest him, we got him. He's taken away, the Romans did it for us. Or he's going to say, well, you know, we're not allowed to stone people anymore because the Romans won't allow us to do that. And playing politics, yeah, she did this wrong, but we need to do, you know, whatever. That would totally discredit him. So either option according to they their thinking they had him but what happened scripture says that he knelt down and he wrote in the dust now another thing we don't know by just reading the scriptures but knowing the background this is the eighth day the sabbath day you're not allowed to do any work the written law says you can't do any work which writing that lasts is permanent is called work and that's a sin. Can't do it on the Sabbath day. But the oral tradition said, but if you write in the dust, it's okay because the wind's going to come and blow it away. So Jesus, by responding to their challenge, what do you say to this woman's sin? He stoops down. He writes in the dust saying, I know the law. I'm not allowed to write. But the oral law says that I can. I know them both. Now, he's responding to the question, what do you say? Well, what does the law say? Is Jesus going to break the law? No. More than likely. Now, it doesn't say, but more than likely, he was writing death and stoner. But it was in the dust. He didn't stand up. He didn't do anything to do that. Following that writing in the dust, then he stood up and said, and he who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, this is a very shame, pride-based culture. And for someone to say, I'm without sin, I'm going to throw the first one. Lots of scripture, and I can cite them here. 
um, says that it, Isaiah 53, 6 and Ecclesiastes 7, 20 and a number of others say that no one is without sin. So they're not about to identify themselves. Plus, which the person who identifies themselves then is the person that the Romans are going to arrest and carry away. So Jesus had them. But did Jesus gloat and say, ha ha, I got you? No, he continued to write in the sand as they started to go one by one. And it said from the oldest to the youngest. So it was the religious leaders who, you know, we have to go. We're not without sin. And they all left. And then we see what does he do with the woman? Where are your accusers? And they're gone. Neither do I condemn you. But go and leave your life of sin. So he agreed. This is sin. And a penalty was to be paid. But she was forgiven. She was forgiven. Now, he did more than just say she was forgiven. He enacted what the whole message of atonement is about. They were all angry at her, wanted to stone her. He took their anger on himself. And he made the crowds angry at him. He also was depicting the type of Um, interpreting his cross, he was saying that there is penalty for sin. There is. But he removed the penalty and interpreted his cross saying, I took it. I took it. You deserved it, but I took it. So now we're going to go to another place in John, just four chapters ahead. However, we're going to use the same, and often the same stories will be found in the different Gospels. We're going to use the one in Luke for a reason. And I'll show you that one. It's in Luke 36 through 50. I'm I'm sorry, Luke 7, 36 through 50. And this is one that we've talked about before here. The woman, um, I'm sorry, Simon, uh, the Pharisee's house, where the woman came and anointed Jesus' feet. Now, the other thing we don't know because of the way we read scripture is the Old Testament throughout the, uh, throughout the prophets were written in what's called a chiastic structure. We start everything intro, points, and conclusion. They show the main point, not in the end of the story, but in the middle. And this is a perfect, perfect chiastic structure or ring composition or prophetic Um, structure. And it comes with seven scenes. It has an intro describing the Pharisees and and the uh, the woman and Jesus. It concludes. So you've got these two. And the conclusion, talk about who's there. Then the next, it's like an arrow pointing. Next one is the woman's action of love, washing Jesus' feet with her hair. Um, And then it ends with next to the conclusion. Jesus is talking about that action. Then there's the dialogue where Jesus is talking to Simon and Simon judges wrongly. Then we have the main point. After the main point is the dialogue again right under it where it says he judges rightly. So the main point is the parable. The parable is the main point. Well, we're going to get there. 
Also, the same thing, there's rings within rings. Even when it talks about uh, her act of devotion, there is the standing at Jesus. She brought perfume. Then she stands at Jesus' feet. She lets down her hair. She uses her hair. She kisses his feet. Perfume poured out. Can you see the structure? It points to something that's important, and we'll get to that too. But I want you to see, Scripture is very clear, and there's so much we don't see in that. But the Jews understood that. And we can come to understand that as we really learn how to read Scripture. There's so much more. There's a story inside the story that we often miss that makes it just that personal. So this story is the story of Simon the Pharisee inviting the people to hear Jesus at his house at a dinner. He throws a dinner. Now, how many of you here have known when there's been a visiting evangelist come, say, oh, there's a dinner. You know, come. Anyone who wants to come, come. It's opened up. We do that today, don't we? Well, they did that then, too. They announced the the teacher, the rabbi, whoever's coming. So come, come on. And it was announced. It's very similar. So this woman in the story, it doesn't say she's the same woman that was caught in the act of adultery. However, it could be her or it could be someone just like her. And there's a reason for that 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 I can back that up. Um, it shows that she was, she knew that he was there and she came. So I'm going to paint this scene for you. Here we go. There's a big dinner. All townspeople are invited and there are some people that are already there. Jesus walks in. This is what scripture tells us. Jesus walks in and then he sits down. Now, that doesn't sound very eventful, does it? However, behind the scenes, if you know the culture, the culture says there are some strict traditions, even us. If we had a guest coming, wouldn't we greet them and say, oh, it's so good to see you come in? Or would you like a drink? Let me take your coat and hang it up, whatever. Their custom was they greeted them with a kiss. That was the, You've seen the Middle Eastern cultures do that. Then because of the dusty roads, they would wash their feet. And they had a towel and a basin, and they would wash their feet. And all the homes had olive oil, and they anointed their hands as another form of washing. And that was customary. That was just the nicety. It would be for, for someone to come to their house and they not to do that would be like us opening the door and just opening up the door for our guest and turning our back on them and go talk to somebody else. Same thing. It would be rather insulting. But it doesn't say that. But if you know the culture, you'll know it. So Jesus enters and he sits down. Now, what's the significance of his sitting down? First of all, their tradition says the eldest person is the first person to be seated. Jesus is 30 to 33 at most. He's not the oldest person there in the flesh. But he's Messiah. He's Lord. He was before the creation of time. He's the oldest. He comes and he sits down saying, I am the eldest. That's a strong statement. He's making statements here that we miss. But it makes it alive. We can see there's just so much more. So the woman's already present. She sees all of this happening. Now, 
most of us will read this, and from our understanding, gee, the woman, they're saying, if you knew what kind of a woman, she must be there as a sinner who wants forgiveness. But according to understanding the Jewish customs and if examining what the early church fathers said, there were Ambrose, Origen, and I forgot the other one, Cass, um, ah, um, Cassian. Those were the early church fathers, right at the, the time, right after the apostles. All have commentaries that agreed that this woman was already forgiven when she came. And there's a significance to that. She's already forgiven when she comes. She isn't coming there to get forgiveness. She's coming there with a different motive. So what's her motive? To thank him. To show her devotion, as we were singing about. To show her love. To show her devotion to Jesus. For the forgiveness she's already received. Even Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And many of you would probably know who he was. He was martyred for his faith under Nazi Germany. He, he also was agreeing. No, she came there as a forgiven woman. She didn't come there to get forgiveness. Why is that important? First of all. It's important to know what Jewish terms for forgiveness would be. First of all, for someone to be forgiven, they have to repent. Second, they have to make restitution. The third, they have to resolve never to sin again. Well, a prostitute or an adulteress can't really make restitution. So they're stuck. There's no way for them to get forgiveness under that system. It's impossible for them. But Jesus forgave her. It's another reason for thinking that possibly she could be that woman or someone just like her. So she saw. She was already there. She saw Jesus come in, and she saw the insult. And she knew who he was. She said, how can they insult him like this? How could they do that? And she began to cry. She was weeping. And then he's sitting, so she's seeing his feet are dusty. They never washed him. They didn't do that customary thing that everybody, any common person would get treated. They, they wash anybody's. Well, she didn't come prepared to wash his feet because the host is supposed to have done that. So what did she use? She, she had tears. She says, well, I'll wash them with my tears. Now, the next point, this is huge, and this ties it again to the songs, and it is just amazing that the Holy Spirit was orchestrating the selection of the songs, and, and Rob, you were hearing the Lord. It was just something that she came prepared with her costly ointment, but she didn't come prepared with anything else, but when she came down, washed her feet, there was no towel. She had a garment like this, even more so. She had plenty of material. She could have wiped her feet with her garment. So why didn't she? She wiped it with her hair. Now again, let's go back to that chiastic structure that I showed you about the hair. The hair is the point. The hair is the point. We'd miss it. In Jewish culture, a woman was not allowed to show her hair. They covered it or... If it couldn't be covered, if it fell off, it had to be bound at all times. 
Never was it loose. Ever, ever, ever. The only time a woman had her hair loose was on her wedding night with her husband. So what is she saying? What is she saying? She's making a point. She's saying, this man, I'm devoted to him. Now, there was no sexual overtones in this. We didn't see that. But we saw undying affection, not affection, devotion to him. She, so what did this mean? This was an intolerable offense. Just absolutely. That woman did that? In public? To him? (gasps) So the Pharisees, what? Look at that. Jesus, if you knew what kind of woman she was, and she touched you with her hair? Now you can read it and you can see it. It's there. Touch you with your hair? And they wanted a response from him. So what was his response to her? First of all, he accepted her. They expected him to judge her. He doesn't break the law. This is intolerable. But he accepts her. What does his acceptance of her mean? His acceptance of her means that he understood the cost. He understood that she said, Jesus, I am so thankful to you for what you've done for me. I couldn't pay this on my own. And I'm going to give you everything that I have. All my devotion, my whatever status, whatever thing I, anything I have left, they're going to take it away from me. But I give it to you, Jesus. It cost her. Cost her everything. everything. He also saw that um, she entered into his suffering and rejection. He was, he was insulted. Now, she was joining in him. She was being insulted along with him. She's sharing that with him. And he saw that. And he had compassion on her. She also was, um, she had made a decision to give her thanksgiving for her forgiveness to Jesus. She was demonstrating that she saw within Jesus the Shekinah presence of God. And she recognized that he was the Messiah. And she was demonstrating that she recognized it and she was going to follow him no matter what the cost. That's huge. We can learn from that. So the main point of the parable, after Simon asks him, so what do you say about this, what this woman's doing? Here comes the main point. The main point, he says, okay, Simon. There's a creditor who has two people who owe a debt. They're the creditor and the debtors, two debtors. One of them owed a large amount of, of, of money. That one was forgiven. The other one owed a small amount. That one is forgiven. So... Which one do you think is going to love you more? Love, love him more. The one with the large one. Now, in this parable, again, he is saying 
The creditor is God. He's pointing to his action. He's pointing to the woman, and he's pointing to Simon. He's equating himself with God, who has the power to forgive. He's also saying, she forgave much. Uh, She she, um, was forgiven much. She loved much. You were forgiven too. And notice, Simon is forgiven. He did give both of them forgiveness because Jesus came to forgive all. He didn't withhold it from Simon, but he did call him on his actions. Then he defended the woman. He responded to uh, the woman's inappropriate by action by attacking Simon's inappropriate insult. So he defended the woman. And again, the words on the songs that we just sang, even the opening defended the, the, the helpless. There's so much that was just couched in the worship that we did this morning. So, again, the Pharisees tried to humiliate Jesus, but their plan failed because of a woman. They were angry at the woman, but by attacking Simon's behavior, he took their anger at the woman onto himself again. Again, pointing to what the cross meant, what he did. He turned it all onto himself. Simon defined the prophet as one who avoids sinners. Jesus defines a prophet as one who is willing to get hurt for sinners by confronting their attackers. What was the woman's response to the forgiveness? Love, devotion, and she received peace. So in conclusion, and we still are Western thinkers, most of us here. So we like to have it all summed up at the end. So in conclusion, forgiveness does come first. Jesus paid it all. He already did it. Even before we asked for it, he did it. Now, we still need to repent and ask for it to receive it. It's not blanket, but he gave it first. And in response, our response is our obedience, is our gratitude. First, our gratitude, and then our obedience. So we have two choices. We can live our lives in devoted response to Jesus. And we can enter into that relationship, that relationship of love with him. Or we can respond like the Pharisees did. And don't forget, they were the people of God. But we could remain limited in our understanding. We can have prideful obedience, follow the rules, and not have the relationship The woman acknowledged her inability to pay, and we can't pay. The only thing we can do is show him our gratitude by loving him and loving each other. Because that's what he said to do, love him and love each other.
Our church is a wonderful church that preaches the gospel. For those who really want to know Jesus intimately and have a relationship with him, we have things in place to help. One of those is going to be offered on the first Saturday night of May, June, July, and August. Just four months we have planned. It's a night of worship and praise where we can show our devotion and our love to Jesus together. And before that, starting at 5.30, we'll have a potluck where we all come together and just love on each other, enjoy each other's fellowship, just just fellowship. Then we come together at 6.30, and we're going to worship our Lord and pray. That's one night a month, the first Saturday, May, June, July, and August. Another opportunity we have coming up, starting in the first Wednesday of May, Pastor Rob is starting a series on discipleship. That's the, what now? We started, some of us, just for the, we just started. Some of us are coming back. Some of us have just kind of been coasting along and say, I want more. I need more. I just need to grow deeper. Come. We can not only learn how to be discipled, but how to disciple others. And I told you my story about what happened to me. There are many others out there like that. There are many who started a relationship with the Lord, and they don't know what else to do. Yeah, I'm saved. But they don't know. We can help them, even if you've already been discipled. You can come and learn how to disciple someone else. Help draw them to know Jesus intimately. So that's available. Now, I know some of you have work commitments and whatnot, and those may not be things that you're able to. And if not, you can call the church office and we'll, we'll talk with you about maybe other opportunities that we can help you because we want to come and walk alongside you. We're all in this together. We're all growing together. And our goal is that we walk together, hand in hand, loving each other, as we all grow one step closer to Jesus. One other thing I forgot to mention, this coming Thursday night is the National Day of Prayer. Our church is hosting it at 630. Everyone from Big Bear Valley is invited to come to our church here this coming Thursday night at 630 for the National Day of Prayer. Anyone who can come, we would invite you to come for that as well. So together, we have lots of opportunities to grow as one family, a family that's loved a family that can grow closer to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible gift of grace that you've purchased for each and every one of us by taking all of the insults, the pain, the trauma, the sickness, the disease, the hurt, everything, the sin into your own body and dying with it and breaking its power over us by raising from the dead. I thank you for the new life that you've given each one of us, the opportunity. And if there's anyone here right now, I, and I pray you, that you would all close your eyes to give people the opportunity to just, just keep their eyes on the Lord. If there's anyone who's never come to know Jesus or needs to return, you can raise your hand and Jesus will see you. 
and say, yes, I'd, I'd like to follow you, Jesus. I'd like to receive your gift of grace. I repent of my sin, and I, I want to follow you. If there's any, anyone here who wants to do that, please feel free. Raise your hands. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Father, I pray that for those who have raised their hands and said yes to you, Jesus, that you would meet them in a powerful encounter of your incredible grace and love, that they would be so drawn to your heart that they would come to know how precious they are in you, Lord. We also pray, Jesus, that you would engulf every one of us as your precious children, helping us to grow together as one family. And I ask, Lord Jesus, as we do leave this building today, that we would all go being refreshed, being renewed, and being empowered by your Holy Spirit to live lives that are fully devoted to you and filled with grace, filled with love, filled with power to thank you and show that in the way we treat others as well. And in the name of Jesus, the powerful name of Jesus, may you all now go forth in his anointing, grace, and power. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a uh, welcome.